2: Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at
4: tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.
2: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
5: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about the Lavender Menace. And Caroline, when you first heard the phrase Lavender Menace,
0: what came to mind? Probably Grimace from the McDonald's ads from the 80s. <laughs> oh, Grimace. Yeah. I mean, what did Grimace do? I don't know, but I for years I got... <laughs> Like a grimace and the hamburger burglar mixed up, so then it really would be a lavender menace. Grimace coming along, stealing all your cheeseburgers. Yeah, but I think grimace was just like a purple gumdrop of happiness. I don't know. Well, the lavender menace has nothing to do with
5: cheeseburgers, <laughs> nothing to do with fast food corporations. And sadly, Caroline, nothing to do with your childhood. (laughs) No, it's probably better than it doesn't. So The Lavender Menace is a not-so-sunny, but also kind of radical and amazing chapter of second-wave feminist history that we wanted to talk about because, A, I I don't think a lot of people know about it. And, B, it is informative to the relationship today between feminism and sexual orientation. Um, Mm -hmm. And this also is a snapshot of what happens when intersectionality doesn't really exist, because Mm -hmm. we usually think of intersectionality in terms of ethnicity. And it's also instructive, too, for understanding the cultural climate when Second-wave feminism, and more specifically, women's liberation, was really taking off and developing and becoming this uh, large-scale political movement in tandem with things like civil rights and gay rights also beginning to organize. But what is
0: the Lavender Menace? Well, as it relates to women's liberation and second-wave feminism... It was initially a term that uh journalist Susan Brown Miller attributes to Betty Friedan, she of feminine mystique fame, uh when describing the potential credibility threat that was posed to the National Organization of Women and really feminism at large by aligning with lesbians. Well, uh, this was specifically referring to Radical lesbians at the time who considered
5: women-only relationships to be a necessary cornerstone of feminism. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about radical lesbians and lesbian feminism in the second half of the podcast. But it's important to clarify that this was focused
0: specifically on a group of women. And some bright young person out there today might be thinking, well, why wouldn't you want lesbians or pansexual women or bisexual women in your feminist movement. That seems weird, and it does, but it had a lot to do with, like I said, the credibility threat that people like Betty Friedan perceived. Uh, they were so worried that because there was this fear of homosexuality at the time and this fear of lesbians, that it would almost taint the message, basically.
5: So to give you an idea, though, of of what degree of homophobia we are... Talking about. In 1971, a guy named Frank S. Caprio wrote in Variations in Sexual Behavior that, quote, female homosexuality is becoming an increasingly important problem. It's believed by some that women are becoming rapidly defeminized. As a result of their overt desire for emancipation and that this psychic masculinization of American women contributes to frigidity, some sexologists fear that this defeminization trend may seriously affect the sexual happiness of modern women. And as is still the case today, the go-to insults for feminists at the time were... That they were frigid, that they didn't want to shave their legs, and that they were man-hating lesbians. And that was really the most insulting thing that you could tell a woman at the time, because, again, homophobia. And also, it was the 70s, y'all.
0: Yeah, and so in order to fight those stereotypes, now the National Organization for Women initially thought it best to distance itself from anything that might tie the group or the women in the group to lesbianism or lesbians or the the hint that someone might not have shaved their legs that day. So they certainly were not going to add any sort of lesbian agenda to their overall agenda. Well, and it was specifically to radical lesbians that they were concerned
5: about. Because, as we'll talk about more in the second half of the podcast, when we get into a discussion about lesbian feminism, um, there were women at the time who considered women only relationships to be a necessary cornerstone of feminism. In order to fully resist the patriarchy, you got to fully resist the penis. And we're yeah. talking about in the bedroom, too. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so how
0: did... The Lavender Menace play out. Well, we've got to go back to 1963 when Betty Friedan publishes The Feminine Mystique, which was revolutionary, absolutely, for the time, but for a very specific group of women. Some of these criticisms are probably not new to many of our listeners. And we read about this uh, in The Atlantic in a piece by Ashley Futter's A lot of people criticized the book as being not only classist, applying only to perhaps middle or upper middle class or wealthy white suburban housewives, but also saying that it was racist, that it literally only did apply to white women and left out the concerns of women of color. And, of course, there was the point that it was not exactly embracing of gay people and that it was homophobic. Yeah, at one
5: point Ferdinand links, quote, the national embrace of a feminine mystique to gay men, referring to male homosexuality as a murky smog.
0: So th- that doesn't sound exactly open-minded. Yeah, she had based her idea of male homosexuality as a murky smog on Kinsey's research about gay men that was based on men he had talked to in prison and in bars. So it's it's kind of unfortunate when you're basing kind of your thesis on shaky research. Well, and she certainly, certainly, certainly did not have lesbians
5: in mind when she wrote The Feminine Mystique. I mean, if you Mm -hmm. read it today, it's very clear that she is talking to a very specific white, upwardly mobile group of women. And then three years later, in 1969, relations between lesbian feminists and straight feminists, took a negative turn when now omitted the New York chapter of the Daughters of Bilitis, which was the first civil and political lesbian organization in the United States from its sponsors. Because, again, like we talked about, Fredan and the powers that were in the National Organization for Women said, you know what, we need to distance ourselves from the quote-unquote lesbian agenda And you know what? Lesbian leader Rita Mae Brown said in response was, see
0: you later now. I am out of here. Yeah. Rita Mae Brown, who is an all around pretty nifty woman. She is featured over on Makers, the PBS AOL partnership that celebrates amazing women. And she certainly is one. So I recommend you head over there and learn all about Rita Mae Brown. But... That year, late 1969 into early 1970, New York Times magazine journalist Susan Brownmiller, who we mentioned earlier, who herself was a legitimate part of the feminist movement, was assigned to cover women's liberation. And it's worth noting that Brownmiller only got this assignment after a male reporter they originally tapped to cover it was shut down because the women just were like, I don't feel like talking to a guy about this. No thanks. (laughs) No way. No way were women's lib going to be like, hey, yeah, come on in, fella. (laughs) Sit on down. Yeah, you're not going to mock us at all.
5: So on March fifteenth, 1970, Brown Miller's piece, Sisterhood is Powerful, is published in New York Times magazine. And this is really when the whole lavender menace thing kind of blows up. So it includes this bit. She wrote, quote, the super sensitivity of the movement to the lesbian issue and the existence of a few militant lesbians within the movement once prompted for Dan herself to grouse about the lavender menace that was threatening to warp the image of women's rights. A lavender herring, perhaps,
0: but surely no clear and present danger. And of course, Brown Miller meant the Herring comment to discredit Friedan and Friedan's like nervousness about lesbians and including lesbians in the movement. However, unfortunately, a lot of radical lesbians took it to discredit them, as if Brown-Miller was saying, no, don't worry about those old lesbians. They're not going to be able to organize and cause any sort of political upheaval. So in response to this whole thing,
5: members of the Gay Liberation Front break off to form the radical lesbians, who also call themselves the lavender menace. They are reclaiming mm-hmm. this insult, uh, you know, attributed to Fredan and they decide that they are going to
0: organize and strike back at now. Yeah. And so on May 1st, 1970, they strike the second Congress to unite women and they quote unquote zap the event. So basically they had planned this in advance. They run in, they turn out the lights in this gathering of women. They end up storming the stage. Once the lights come on, there they are. They're on stage. They're in the aisles and they hand out copies of the woman identified woman. And they happen to be wearing some pretty cool homemade lavender minis shirts, which would be awesome if those were circulated again. Not saying you have to buy me one, but it'd be great. So the woman identified woman,
5: by the way, was the radical lesbian's manifesto. And Caroline, can I read a little bit from the beginning of the woman identified woman? Please. I mean this is one
0: of the best intros to like a pamphlet type thing that I've ever read. <laughs> yeah,
5: and, and I, I posted this on our Instagram and the the comments on it were pretty entertaining. What is a lesbian? A lesbian is the rage of all women condensed to the point of explosion. She is the woman who, often beginning at an extremely early age, acts in accordance with her inner compulsion to be a more complete and freer human being than her society, perhaps then, but certainly later, cares to allow her. The radical lesbians, in other words, were not messing around, because being a lesbian was not only sexual orientation, it was an entire political philosophy in a lot of ways. And it actually turned out pretty well. It seems like uh, the radical lesbians ended up leading workshops at the second Congress to unite women, uh, talking about how to educate other women about their politics and platforms. And, the thing though that's really interesting to, to consider, I mean, again, this is not that long ago. It's in the early 70s, um, but, but still might seem so foreign for us today. But there was this real conflict, um, for straight feminists who were concerned, maybe not so much with lesbianism in particular, but really the focus on sex. There was this misconception that Everything was all just about sex and that lesbians were telling them, well, no, instead of having sex with men, you have to now have
0: sex with women. Anne Cott was one of the writers of this time who took issue with that and she was essentially saying in one, uh, pamphlet we read from, I think, 1971, so the following year after the second Congress to unite women, that it shouldn't, in her opinion, it shouldn't be about who you're sleeping with, whether you want to be a radical lesbian or you're straight or you're asexual or whoever you are, that true political power doesn't lie in who gets in your bed it's what you do with it. So fine, you want to say that you're going to be uh, a lesbian to align yourself with the radical lesbians or that you just are a lesbian? Like, that's all well and good. Take that anger, that uh, willingness to turn away from men and the patriarchy and actually put it towards dismantling the system. Well, and it's worth noting, too, how
5: women's liberation had really been considered a refuge from all of those cultural sexual pressures mm-hmm. that women in the time had been feeling. So it is understandable that some reacted with hesitation. But with this knowledge, radical lesbians really pivoted their message away from sex because for them it was not about sex. Uh, but when it came to the sex factor... They emphasized sensuality, lifestyle impurity, essentially saying like these are the purest possible kinds of relationships that women can have. Because also there was a criticism that, oh, well, lesbians are simply mimicking the male role and just to sexually exploit women, which, of course, also was not
0: the case. Yeah, they're really removing sexuality from their message to make it more about not being dependent on men. Part of that was to clarify the message. Part of that, I think, was to make the more mainstream straight feminists comfortable so that like everybody can get along and sort of work together. Because Rita Mae Brown pointed out over in one of her videos over at Makers that prior to the Lavender Menace striking the second Congress to Unite Women, basically after Friedan had kicked the lesbians out the movement really suffered. It became weaker. It became more divided. You took out a passionate element from your movement. So, of course, it's going to be weaker. And so... Whether they are considering themselves radical lesbians or whether they're sort of pivoting their message to make the mainstream a little more comfortable, they're saying, let's work together and fight for political power. Well, well, speaking of politics, though, one point
5: that Rita Mae Brown made, whom we should note, is a bestselling author. She argued that when those lesbians initially left that movement that they took the culture with them Mm -hmm. and that the only thing now was focused on were just straight political platforms yeah as is really still the case today in a lot of ways in terms of um quote-unquote mainstream feminism but we do see The factions coming back together again, at least a little bit in September 1971, uh, the National Now Conference passed a resolution on lesbian as a legitimate concern of feminism, as well as it should be noted, the, quote, double oppression of minority women. So finally, in 1971 now is starting to, like, really pay attention to the fact that, hey, not all just white, straight women. Um, and it's also in 1971 that the radical lesbians disband. And also, too, in a show of solidarity to, to kind of see how this is progressing, some straight feminists started identifying as political lesbians just to, you know, really ally themselves with
0: those women. And so it it took a minute, but in 1977, Friedan herself recants that lavender menace bigotry and pledges support for lesbians' rights by seconding the motion to support lesbian rights at a women's conference in Houston that was held to ratify the United Nations platforms for women. And we should say, too, that uh, in the
5: makers' interviews, which uh, if you can't tell yet, you should watch them, in those makers' interviews with Rita Mae Brown... She does talk specifically about Betty Friedan and she says, I always respected her. I didn't always agree with her, obviously, but she was instrumental in this massive movement. And she kind of laughs about how Friedan was always very hesitant to say anything publicly about how she had been wrong on the so-called lesbian issue. But I thought it was... Notable of Rita Mae Brown to just be like, yeah, I mean, I I respected her, but, Mm. I mean, it didn't mean I necessarily liked her all the time. Which, again, to me, just goes to show how she's a pretty cool lady. Rita Mae Brown. And I should say, too, Caroline, that in the HBO documentary about Gloria Steinem, this issue also gets a brief mention. And Steinem talks about how She and Ferdinand definitely did not see eye to eye when it came to the gay issue, because that was something that Steinem always stood on behalf of in terms of being more inclusive.
0: Can I rant for a sec, please?
2: Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank a National Association, member FDIC. So props to Gloria. Well, always. You know, old glow. Um, But now that we've talked about,
5: you know, what the lavender menace was, we do want to talk more about lesbian feminism and get a little bit more into radical feminism that was going on in the seventies and eighties. Again, because I I feel like this is history, feminist history that we might know about in broad brushstrokes, but maybe not in more of the details.
0: Well and I, I mean I think that's part of the problem in that voices of women outside of that White, middle class, straight, mainstream have frequently been and consistently been uh, silenced or just uh, placed lower on the totem pole.
5: And I just think, too, that it's important for us to understand how feminism has evolved and all of the various schools of thought that are contained within it. And, I mean, the fact of the matter is, as we'll talk about more when we get into lesbian feminism, that, you know, trying to find the perfect feminism, I think, is is rather impossible. Yeah. And it's perhaps more beneficial, rather than seeking perfection to... Glean the lessons learned from and through these various feminisms.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, exactly feminisms plural, because yes, I mean, I think if you're going to use a broad brush and paint with a broad feminist brush, yes, uh, everyone who might consider themselves a feminist would talk about, uh, political standing, rights, access, gender equality. Yeah, but there are More nuances, although some of those nuances are more radical than others. So in the
5: 1970s, as second wave feminism and women's liberation is developing, this thing called cultural feminism is really branching into... Major directions. There's the idea of resisting sexism by changing institutions, uh, things that we would think about today in terms of like getting progressive feminist women elected to office, women owned businesses uh, starting and supporting those. And then there was an offshoot from that, which took things a little bit further, to say the least. And this was lesbian
0: separatism. Yeah, this was this was sort of what made Betty Friedan uncomfortable uh, when she was heading up now. And so in the late 60s and 70s, and even really today to some extent... Some women's liberationists believed that not only were feminism and lesbianism inextricably linked and that that was the lifestyle that you should pursue and aspire to, but that literally the women who considered themselves to be radical lesbians were the vanguard of the feminist movement. They said, hey, we rejected these patriarchal sex roles. We rejected men before any of you guys did. We're the we're the original hipster of the feminist movement. And it was this separation or this desire to be separate that did sort of drive a lot of people away, but it certainly attracted a lot of people to that movement as well.
5: Yeah. And and in terms of that idea of lesbians being the vanguard of the feminist movement, um, we can go back quickly to the woman identified woman manifesto, which at one point said, Only women can give each other a new sense of self. We must be available and supportive to one another and give our commitment and our love. And that's something to keep in mind in terms of how radical feminism not only called for gender equality, but also liberation from sex roles, which, of course, the radical lesbians would then take a step farther. And this was something that Anne Cote wrote about in 1971, and we found it over at the Chicago Women's Liberation Union Archive online, which is a really great resource. Um, so Anne wrote about how other gay women see lesbianism as much more than a defining term for the sex of your bed partner. To them, it's a total life commitment to a life with women in an entire system of worldview and life living. And that also gets to why, you know, it, we're using the term lesbianism, mm-hmm. which makes it sound like not like a sexual orientation or even identity, but rather this whole thing, because it was this whole thing, an entire worldview.
0: Yeah, because as Ann Cott also pointed out, uh, she was like, hey, ladies, like, it's fine if you're a lesbian, but sexism and sex roles that you're talking about, don't disappear just because you're not sleeping with men, just because you're sleeping with women. And so she was sort of pushing for... uh, Well, I don't know that she was pushing for lesbianism, as you were just talking about it, Kristen, but she was pushing for just uh, a little bit of an oomph behind turning away the idea of turning away from men ladies let's get some oomph yeah let's get get some volume let's get our oomph back and don't just turn away from men sure fine but use that as a political force use your efforts and your energy as a political force I'm just imagining
5: feminism as a woman's head of hair and this whole radical lesbian thing being like a bumpet. You know, in, the, in these terms. One of those, would it be like a bun donut thing? Maybe? Oh, yeah. That too, I like the bumpet. The sock bun? Yeah. Um, so when it comes though to lesbian separatism, they were advocating for living away from men entirely because they really believed that liberation meant living away from men, that that was the only way to truly achieve female liberation. And it's worth noting that these, this group was very much more on the fringes. But out of this, though, a lot of women-only spaces emerged, some of which were more of the consciousness-raising types of like the safe spaces that we think of more in terms of online spaces today. But uh they also went as far as entire living arrangements that, you know, (laughs) specifically banned men from the premises.
0: Well, yeah. And as Rita Mae Brown talks about in some of those makers videos, it was literally like the first time that some of these women had ever experienced anything like that. I mean, and and talking about it aside from from whether you were lesbian or not, um, she talks about how the trajectory of so many women's lives was just, okay. you're someone's child. And then maybe you go to college and probably might live in a sorority house. So you're still living with other women, but still with the goal of, well, as soon as that phase of your life is over, you are going to be in someone else's house uh, in marriage. So you you never quite break out and learn to live life on your own. And so they were definitely advocating for women almost to learn how to live, how to be on their own and be themselves and be okay with that. Yeah, so an example of
5: this was a group called the Furies that splintered off from the radical lesbians and they were a collective trying to prove that they could live without men to the point, actually, uh, that activist Alice Wolfson was told that she could not bring her infant son to a Furies meeting because he had a penis. (laughs) <laughs> like, literally, no peens allowed. That baby is the enemy. And the Furies, whom I want to say Rita Mae Brown was a part of, weren't just living together. They created their own newspaper. They had a child care center. Although, I wonder if the child care center accepted boy babies as well. I'm going to assume so. And they also, as she talks about, uh, had a car repair school because... Back then, as is now, women taking their car to the shop was usually not that fun of an experience.
0: Yeah, and uh, Brown talks about how this group ended up inspiring other such collective houses or safe spaces, and even women's festivals, where, yeah, sure, you had women performing and women attending, but you also had women on the tech side, running the lights, running the sound, and all of that stuff. Which paved the way for Lilith Fair. <laughs> Thank you so much. The end.
5: <laughs> also, I'm now wondering, with all of the 90s nostalgia happening Will Lilith Fair come back? Well, I just
0: thought Sarah McLaughlin just performed somewhere. <laughs> I'm so informative, but I grew up, like, listening to that. Somewhere on the planet, Sarah McLaughlin played a guitar. <laughs>
5: Stop the presses. And one example of how this was happening too, not only in New York, this uh, if we go over to Seattle, uh, there was a YMCA there that became a hub for feminist activity and organizing and really became one of those women only spaces. And it actually moved away from the YMCA to further demarcate it as a safe space for women so that you wouldn't like walk out the door and then, oh, there are all these guys going to the Y <laughs> Um and we mentioned this too in our episode a while back on women and farming.
0: Yeah, exactly. It was the 1970s women's land movement, women with a Y. Uh, You had radical feminists forming separatist agricultural communities, things like Yellowhammer and Woman Share, in order to achieve that effort to fully liberate themselves from men and from the patriarchy. And we had cited a great piece in Modern Farmer, which I believe in that episode, Kristen and I could not stop talking about how that was our new favorite magazine. And Speaking of magazines, these groups even had their own independent publications and newsletters like Country Woman. And so, as we talked about in that episode, not to like completely go off on a tangent, but it almost wasn't so much about the farming. It was, certainly. Obviously, there was an effort to grow food and eat it. But it was just more of that idea of like, look, we don't need men to provide our every little need. And did that desire for
5: independence... Also get into what could be considered misandry of just straight up
0: man-hating. Yeah. I mean, the answer is yeah. Yeah. To the point where even butch lesbians were looked down upon, considered unhealthy. It's not It's not healthy for, for lesbians or lesbianism or feminism for you to try to assume the role of the man because, you know, not only are you trying to put yourself above someone who is feminine or female, but you're adopting the same, like, sexual objectification that men do. Yeah, it was referred
5: to as male-identified role-playing and something that was very dangerous. And, and in some of these circles rather than masculine feminine androgyny was the philosophical. And you do have people like Valeria Solanus writing things like the Scum Manifesto, which described women as essentially perfect and men as the sources of all that's wrong with the world. And this is beyond examining something through the lens of a patriarchy. Mm-hmm. But rather looking at the individual men as humans and saying, you, are, you individually are the root of all evil, not these structures that, societal structures that we have erected. And, um, in Scum Manifesto, Solanus maintains that true love can only exist between two women. And the thing is, I mean, again, we, we said a few minutes ago that, that all of the feminisms are not perfect. And this is by no means perfect. That is by no means inclusive in a way this is doing exactly what feminism in its essence of gender equality is fighting against, which mm-hmm. is deliberately excluding roughly half the population.
0: And, and kind of echoing that, maybe not the same exact sentiment, but uh, Adrian Rich, who was writing at the time, too, envisioned a lesbian continuum of woman identification. So maybe you were actually literally a lesbian or maybe you were just turning away from men. But she felt or she wrote that she felt that these types of connections would end up weakening heterosexuality's embrace of the patriarchy. So, yeah, you had actual, literal man-hating, individual man-hating. And then you had people saying, we just, whether you're a real lesbian or a political lesbian, we just have to turn away from men and the things that men have set up in society.
5: And considering the context of the time, I, I can understand where some of these women were coming from, mm-hmm. where it probably Did feel necessary to divorce themselves entirely of what was such a heinously sexist culture at the time, but standing where we are today... Um, that, that doesn't seem like much of a path toward progress because you also have issues like bisexual erasure mm-hmm. going on as well because sleeping with men, according to some, was considered prostituting yourself. So obviously, you know, you have political lesbianism and if, I mean, if you're still attracted to men in whatever way that might be, that's just not okay if you want to achieve your full feminist potential. And of course, when it comes to race and class issues, lesbian feminism wasn't all-encompassing and intersectional either, which is kind of ironic considering that this broke off from the quote-unquote mainstream movement because of feeling isolated and ignored and overlooked and simply
0: (laughs) disliked. And while radical lesbians certainly vocally supported all women,
4: Start planning your trip at TNVacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.
0: It still was a mostly white middle class and educated community of women talking about things. It's not like Asrita Mae Brown. It's not like... A lot of these activists were thinking about women who might be in a poor inner city environment or in a poor farm community or working at a diner. There were people who were less economically advantaged, who were on the margins, who weren't really included in this movement. Well, I mean, and even if
5: they were living in one of those communities, as, you know, some of these women have talked about since, if they didn't have kind of the lingo and the background and the college education. Um, they were considered, uh, you know, just, just sort of, uh, I don't want to say hicks in a way, but, but kind of they were the ones who would get more of a side eye in terms of their gender presentation if they were dressing right. more butch, um, and, and things like that. And, and there was also, group of black lesbians at one point who felt excluded from the whiteness of lesbian feminism and the straightness of black feminism and the sexism of the black power movement and ended up breaking off to form their own uh, group called the Kumbahi River Collective in 1975 and the collective statement they wrote in 1977 kind of sums up all of these things, all of these Oversights, you know, still after all of these layers of, you know, groups breaking off of groups breaking off of groups, finally, you know, they are able to have a space where their specific needs and concerns are valued.
0: And in their collective statement, they specify how committed they are to struggling against oppression, including racial, sexual, heterosexual, and class oppression. And they write that we see as our particular task the development of integrated analysis and practice based upon the fact that the major systems of oppression are interlocking. The synthesis of these oppressions creates the conditions of our lives. You just can't separate these things from each other, which is what people are still Arguing in terms of uh, intersectional feminism today. These things do not exist in a vacuum apart from each other.
5: And it might sound like uh, the answer to all of this is, well, burn it down. Feminists and these lesbian feminists got it wrong and radical feminism was horribly exclusive, so everything's terrible about it. No, I don't think that that's the case at all. A lot of this was laying the foundation for... Feminist theory and women's studies and what would eventually become queer theory, challenging a lot of and examining in a productive kind of way things that people like Adrian Rich, you know, were writing about um, and just pushing, pushing it forward more and more. And um, I, I think I don't think there's anything wrong with admitting that fringes exist. On any kind of spectrum. And I think that, you know, we can learn things from them as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, we can learn things from the fringes just as we can learn things from the mainstream. As long as there are people like Susan B. Anthony or Betty Friedan, who in their individual waves of feminism did a great deal to help people, but also consciously excluded many others. I think we can just keep in mind that these movements will always have fringes. People who are willing to raise their hand and speak up and say, I don't see the world like that. I have a voice, too, in this.
5: Yeah. I mean, and it's also important, I think, for us to know where we've come from in order for us to better see where we are and where we can go. It's just learning from. Learning from the past about, you know, the the do's and don'ts, what worked and what didn't. Being being afraid to acknowledge it, too, I think is, uh, you know, doesn't do us any good either. So looking at it today, yeah, it's unfortunate that second wave feminism (laughs) wasn't perfect. Wouldn't that have been great if somehow standing right there in the 60s and 70s with everything going on and culture where it was if, you know, one woman, we want to put it all on the shoulders of like a group of women of like, you know, Betty Friedan or Gloria Steinem or Rita Mae Brown or whomever and say that one of them somehow had perfect vision through all of that. Would we have a podcast? (laughs) Or would it be the same? I don't know that we would need one. I mean, like who... That's the question. It's like, would that have even been possible to see through all that? There were a number of women who were doing that, who were mm-hmm. being as inclusive as possible. Um, but I think it's also, you know, too, if you were to talk to lesbian separatists who were living back then today, they would probably say, well, what other choice did we have? Mm-hmm. And that's something to consider as well. So I'm really curious to hear. Uh, listeners' responses to this episode, because it's a little bit different from what we normally do. We haven't taken a, a deeper dive just into a discrete chapter in feminist history in quite a long time. I know. So did it leave you with any particular impression, or does it inform
0: today's feminism a little bit more for you, Caroline? Well, I mean, it just made me think about what happens when groups of people are essentially forced out of a movement and what can come from that. And yes, the the result can be radical, but... I think really fascinating things can come out of the work that excluded groups do and that can really trickle down and inform future movements and future activists because it's not as if the conversations that radical lesbians and uh, the Lavender Menace were having in the 60s and 70s, it's not as if those conversations have gone away. Oh, exactly.
5: Yeah, and which is why I think it's so important for us to understand this. And for me, I was especially curious to learn more about this concept of radical feminism specifically happening in the 1970s because being radical and being a radical feminist is still a go-to insult today. I mean, these same kinds of stereotypes and assumptions that Betty Friedan, you know, was really trying to navigate now around in terms of it making you a lesbian who hates men and never wants to shave her legs. Those things are still so alive and well. And mm-hmm. I notice, especially on Stuff Mom Never Told You YouTube channel, that the insults that I get if I talk about feminism are usually, oh, uh, you're just, you're you're a radical feminist. You're just one of those radical feminists. Or... The compliment in quotes that I get from people like that is, oh, you're not like one of those radical feminists. But what does it really mean? What do those people really know what they're talking about? And when I respond, do I really know what I'm talking about? Because I I don't I think the answer has been no. You know, I I think that radical feminism doesn't mean what a lot of people
0: think it means. Well, it seems like when people are commenting on the YouTube videos, you're radical if you talk or exist in the world as a woman outside of the home, or even if you're in the home. Um, and so, no, I, I don't think that a lot of people have this historical context in their back pocket about women who actually were like, no, to heck with all of this.
5: Well, I, by that definition, the lazy, incorrect definition of radical feminism is that it equals hating men, that it equals misandry, which that is not what radical feminism was. Radical feminism Promoted gender equality, but was and is committed to you know dismantling these entire roles that were set up as well. And I that this might be a radical concept, but I think that that can coexist with not <laughs> hating men. Oh, I don't yeah. think that they're mutually exclusive. But is there that Venn diagram where we get into you know the the not ironic misandrist space? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's possible. It, it is possible. Well, now yet again, listeners, we want to hear from you all of your thoughts about the lavender menace and lesbian feminism and intersectionality and where we've come from and the progress that still needs to be made. Momstaff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now.
0: I have a letter here from Lena in response to our Asian fetish episode. She says, I was thrilled to see that you recorded a podcast on yellow fever. It was definitely entertaining, but as far as describing it as a preference, like preferring blondes or tall women, people don't project personality traits and cultural traits onto people because they're blonde or tall. Unfortunately, even those men who claim they just like our look do tend to get upset when we don't fit their stereotypes. As of today, we are expected to take I love Asians as a compliment. Men get more upset if Asian women reject them because they feel somehow entitled, and this includes Asian men at times. Among my friends, we've come up with our own ideas about the type of man who has yellow fever, and none of them are good. To be fair, a lot of them have married interracially. Among husbands, the men in our lives think of Asians as demure women who all fit into one box as laughable. While they have friends who've said awkward things to all of us, the men we partner with are embarrassed to repeat the things they've heard. So, as an Asian woman, good guys do exist. They're just a lot harder to find among the plethora of men who are just creepy. As for Asian men, they could use their own podcast, in part because they historically took quote-unquote female jobs so as not to be a threat to other men when first immigrating to the U.S. Asian men are systematically stereotyped as being weak, feminine, unattractive, and many things... They are simply not in most cases. So thanks for another great podcast. And thanks for your letter and episode suggestion, Lena. And I've got a letter here from Elizabeth about the same episode. And Elizabeth
5: wrote us the most in-depth letter. And Caroline, I honestly wish that I could sit here and read the whole thing, but I cannot. So I'm going to read a couple of excerpts. She begins, I was really pleased to hear and listen to your podcast about Asian fetishes because it's a thing I have to deal with as an Asian woman, and it was nice to have a more diverse perspective of the trials and tribulations of being female. The Asian experience is particularly riddled with a lot of caveats, though, and I feel like there's still more you could go into, but perhaps a future podcast. And she goes on to talk about the challenges of dating, and she says... It doesn't get much easier, quote unquote, dating in for Asians either, because the dynamics of the Asian American population are quite different and much more diverse than most other minority groups in the U.S. My family is on the older side and has been in the U.S. since before Chinese exclusion. And I found that gives me an interesting experience different from many of my friends. The funny thing about your podcast for me is that the media comments that Anna Mae Wong got about how she's Chinese and doesn't have an accent, I still get today. Like just a few months ago, I got picked up by an Uber and it was by some guy who was an immigrant himself. But when he was speaking with me and I told him I was Chinese American, he was literally shocked that I spoke perfect English with no accent. That was this year. His reasoning was that he picks up people from Koreatown and from East L.A. who are Asian and maybe second generation Americans and they still have accents, so he literally didn't think someone like me existed. That's kind of whatever, but I explained to him that my family's been in the country for over a century, so we're all acclimated to being American and speaking English. And then later on, she goes on to talk about how all of this illustrates a much bigger problem about growing up Asian American. I don't think it's intentional on your part or even on the part of anyone else trying to stand up for Asians or promote Asian content. But one of the really difficult things is getting people to understand that Asian American interests and issues are different from Asian issues in East Asia. That sounds really simple when I state it that way. But in practice, it's very hard. For instance, MTV and other media companies aim a lot of their content for Asians by using Asian bands, musicians, anime, movies, etc. at Asian Americans and think that counts as content for us. In some ways it does, but no one pays attention to Asian American bands or comedians or actors as much. A lot of those same programs that work on making the content don't go looking for the Asian-American artists growing up in San Francisco or L.A. Instead of looking locally in America, they go straight to Asia. Asians from Asia don't speak to all of our issues as Asian-Americans. We do have an interest in that content, but that content isn't expressive of the spectrum of our entire experience as Asian-Americans. The where are you really from questions universally piss all of us off, but also assuming that we all have the same experience and like the same things is also pretty annoying, too, because it has a lot to do with perspective, which is individual to every family slash influx group that came in. So, Elizabeth, thank you so much for your insights. We've received so many letters, too, about that episode and appreciate them um, so much we always love your letters. Mom stuff at MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is where you can send them. And for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with this one with links to our sources so you can learn more about The Lavender Menace, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com.
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com